Where do you go when you talk with God? What do you say? I pray in the daily rhythms of life. But to focus, I sometimes come out here to hear more clearly. This is where I pray through the Bible. And it is in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to me. When do prayers come easy to you? Why is it so difficult at other times? How should we talk to God? What kinds of prayers does God love to answer? Well, good morning, C4. It's great to be with you here today. My name is Joel, and uh, about three months ago, I became the site pastor of our first site, C4 North Durham, taking over for Pastor Mark, who did a phenomenal job and is now our kids' pastor. And uh, so I haven't been down here in Ajax in several months, so it's great to be with you. And I want to say a special hello to my friends and family in C4 North Durham. Hope you're doing well here this morning. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be speaking to you this morning. I want to thank Pastor Dave for the opportunity. I've been invited to dive into the middle of our series this summer called How to Pray. We're learning how to pray as a community this summer in a bit of a, a new way, not, not a totally new way, but a new conversation for us as a church because we're talking about how to pray the scriptures. When John, uh, Pastor John began this series, he kind of said that when we pray the scriptures, it's almost as if God's ear gets a little bit closer. God's, God always listens to our prayers. He always listens to the prayers of his children. But when we pray scripture back to him, what we're doing is praying God's own words right back to him. And there's a certain power that comes when we can pray the scriptures to God. So this summer, we're going through the prayers in the scriptures and teaching us as a community how to pray. If I'm being honest about prayer, which I think I probably should be this morning, I would say that I have always struggled with prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor say that before, but I need to say it. I, I have always struggled with it. Prayer is not something that has ever come easy to me. I've had to work at it. There have been seasons where it's, it's working and it's going reasonably well. Sometimes it's amazing for a short period. But I would say for the majority of my life, my prayer life has been difficult. I've had to work at it. It hasn't come easy. I think a lot of us would say the same thing. If we're being honest, I think there are some people perhaps with the spiritual gift of prayer or intercession where it just does come naturally to you. And I'm kind of jealous of you. That's great for you. But I think for most of us, prayer can be difficult. I think one of the reasons why some of us, I know this is true for myself, struggle with prayer 
is in, in way a lack of understanding of what prayer is, what prayer is supposed to be, what God's intention for our prayer life. I bought a book by my favorite author a few years ago called uh, Prayer by Tim Keller. And I love what he said about prayer. He says, prayer is like waking up from a nightmare to reality. We laugh at what we took so seriously inside the dream. We realize that all is truly well. Of course, prayer can have the opposite effect. It can puncture illusions and show us that we are in more spiritual danger than we thought. It can also be like waking up from a pleasant dream to a more difficult reality. So prayer can lead us to shake ourselves and say, why was I so scared? This can't hurt me if God is with me. It can also lead us to say, why was I so oblivious? How could I have justified this? Prayer brings perspective. It shows the big picture. It gets you out of the weeds, and this is the key word, reorients you to where you really are. So far in this series, we've been studying the prayers of Paul, but I get the opportunity to get out of Paul's prayers for a Sunday and take a look at the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 6. I would say that the Lord's Prayer is kind of special for me. I was thrilled when I found out that that's the passage that I was going to be preaching. When I was a boy, the Lord's Prayer was the first passage that my dad taught me. And I memorized it from a very young age and still have it memorized. As I've matured and grown up in my faith, I've really come to love and appreciate the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's, it's so all-encompassing and versatile, yet at the same time so simple and brief. And if you don't have it memorized, you can do it. And you absolutely should do it so you can pull it out whenever you need it. But most of all, I would say the Lord's Prayer has become extra special to me in this last season of my life. Because it, it turned out to be instrumental in what I felt like was my call to go to C4 North Durham. And I would venture to say that I wouldn't be the site pastor of North Durham today if it weren't for how God has used the Lord's Prayer in my own life. And as we go, I'm going to share a little bit about that with you. We find the Lord's Prayer in two different places in Scripture, Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. Now, often in the Gospels, the same episode is recorded twice by a different author and put a, a, a small different spin on it. But this is a situation where Jesus, many, most scholars believe, actually taught the Lord's Prayer twice, which explains why it comes in two completely different contexts. In the Luke passage, it's given by Jesus at the direct request of his disciples. They see that Jesus is off in a certain place praying by himself, which Luke highlights frequently. And they approach him and they say these beautiful words, Lord, teach us how to pray. I think that phrase alone is so powerful. And my prayer for us as a church is that that would be our attitude towards prayer this summer, towards God. That is really the heartbeat behind this series. As a, as a church and as pastors, we are praying that God teach us as a community how to pray this summer. In the Matthew, uh, the Matthew version, however, it's given as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it's more of a general teaching on the nature of prayer. Where Jesus is confronting some hypocrisy that he's seeing in prayer and some common pitfalls. So we're going to zone in here on Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. But before we get to verse 9, we learn a little bit about prayer from Jesus that is extremely important. He says, essentially, number one, prayer is not about attracting attention to yourself. You should not pray so that people think you're impressive. That is not the point of prayer. And he has other things to say about that. 
And then he says, prayer really has nothing to do with eloquence or religious jargon. If you're nervous to pray in front of other people because you don't think you have the right words, that's not the point at all. If there are other people who know exactly what to pray, that's okay. We are simply told, do not be like people who make prayer about themselves. Do not pray with the wrong motives. And then right before Jesus launches into the Lord's Prayer, he says these words. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That's a, that's a whole sermon right there. That's a beautiful phrase by Jesus and something that we should memorize and remember and, and take to heart. And this remarkable statement really undergirds all that we're about to learn about the Lord's Prayer. It sets the trajectory and the context. No matter what you're going through, no matter if you know what to pray or not to pray, you can have hope and you can have joy knowing that your Father in heaven, God knows what you need before you even ask him. I think that's amazing. So whatever we pray, whenever we pray, we should do it with this inherent trust in God, knowing that he's already fully aware of everything that we need. So Jesus begins and says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven is how he begins. This morning what I want to do is teach you what the Lord's Prayer means. Now, for many of you, this is not a new passage. For many of you, you know the Lord's Prayer inside out. So for you, I hope to remind you what the Lord's Prayer really means. And the second thing I want to do is show you how the Lord's Prayer has impacted my own life, as I alluded to a moment ago. And then thirdly, I want to teach you how to use the Lord's Prayer in your own personal prayer life. It begins with the words, Our Father in Heaven. Now I want to point something out to you that I think is extremely significant. The Lord's Prayer begins with God, not us. The Lord's Prayer does not begin with our problems and the questions and requests that we have for God. It begins with God himself. And three amazing things happen when we say, Our Father. You may not know it's happening, but it's happening. The first thing that happens when you say the words, Our Father, is you remember who you're talking to. You're not just talking to somebody out there in the cosmos. You're not talking to yourself. You're talking to Father God. The word Father is the Aramaic word Abba, which means Daddy or Dada. It's, it's a term of intimacy. It's a term of knownness, like that you know the one that you're speaking to. And at the same time, it says this Abba Father is in heaven. So he is at the same time ultimate, overseeing the cosmos, and at the same time intimate. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He placed the stars in the sky, and he knows what you're stressed out about right now, oh, and he cares about it. That's the God that we're praying to. The second thing that happens is that you remember who you are. And this flows out of who God is. If God is our Father, then we are his children. This really is the disciples' prayer. It's, it's really not the Lord's prayer. It's our prayer. It's a prayer that is written for those of us who know Jesus and walk with him and are his children. And when we say our Father, we remind ourselves that we are his children. Again, my friend Tim Keller points out seven benefits of being somebody's child. I want to go there just for a second with you. The first benefit that you get of being someone's child is that you get access. I've shared this illustration at Young Adults before. But think of Barack Obama. Would you like a coffee with Barack Obama? I think if I had the opportunity, I would take a coffee with Barack Obama. But the problem is he's pretty hard to get a coffee with. Pretty exclusive. He's got a full schedule, I would imagine. But you know one person who could always get a coffee with Barack Obama is his daughter, Malia Obama. 
probably within a short period of time, she could get coffee with Barack Obama. And that is because she is his daughter. So she has this special access to him. And this is what our relationship with God is like. Through Jesus, we have access to the Father because of the cross and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. We can access the God of the universe who is our Father. The second thing we get from being someone's child, from being God's child, is a sense of identity. When we know that we are someone's child, there are certain things that go with it. Like, I'm a penny. So if you know anything about my family, you know we're newfies, we're, we're preachers, a lot of us, and uh, we like hockey and baseball. Like, there are certain things that come along with being who you are. And when you are a child of God, you, you, you inherit some character traits and a sense of identity. Your identity is not based on your job or your money or anything like that. It's based on your status as a child of God. We get intimacy when we are somebody's child. We can have those conversations that we may not feel comfortable with other people. We get security. We know that we're protected. We have assurance. I'm never going to wake up one morning not being a penny. I'm always going to be a penny for the rest of my life. And if you are a Christian, you don't have to worry about screwing the whole thing up. Yes, we need to watch our lives and our conduct. But if you are a child of God, your salvation is secure. We get authority. We get inheritance. We are heirs waiting for what Christ has for us. And you remember, thirdly, the third thing that happens when you say the words, Our Father, is you remember that you're not alone. Notice the, the plurality that is spread all throughout this prayer. This is not just a prayer for you. This is a prayer for us. And even if you are alone, you can remember that you are actually not alone in the family of God. These four simple words mark the beginning of this reorientation and refocusing that the Lord's prayer gives to us. <clears throat> the next phrase, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice what's happening here. Once we've acknowledged who we're praying to, the next step is for us to worship him. Worship should mark our prayers. Worship should be the first place we go in our prayers. Please try to refrain from rushing straight into your problems. There are times when we just need to yell out help. But if we have the time, worship should be a priority in our prayers. This word, hallowed, <clears throat> it's an old word, hallow. It means to make holy or consider holy or keep holy. What it really means is to worship. It's, it's a commitment to honor God's name and keep it holy. A person's name represents who they are, their, their attributes, their character, their personality. Therefore, when we hallow God's name, it's to acknowledge that he alone is worthy and that he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And of course, we know that worship is far more than what we just did singing. Worship is our entire lives. Worship is what we do when nobody's looking. Worship is the motives of our heart. Worship is what we prioritize in the deepest core of who we are. And when we pray the words, hallowed be your name, we are saying, God, you be worshipped, and I can, I'm going to worship you with my life. And by the way, one of the ways we can hallow God's name is to not take God's name in vain. Jesus is not a swear word. Jesus is the name above all names, and it should be hallowed and respected and honored above all else. Thirdly, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, as it is in heaven. We did a whole year as a community a couple years ago on the kingdom of God, and there is this multifaceted understanding of kingdom. First of all, we find the kingdom in the present tense, your kingdom come. Yeah, we can pray that now. And the kingdom of God is anywhere the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, 
and accepted. Pastor John taught us that. So if you have welcomed and embraced the lordship of Christ in your heart, the kingdom of God reigns in your heart. The kingdom of God has come into your heart. But we know as we look around our fallen world that the kingdom of God has not yet come all over the earth. It has not yet come as it is in heaven right now. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are not just praying that your kingdom will come now in this situation that we're in, but that ultimately God's kingdom would come, that Christ would return again, as the scriptures say he will, and inaugurate his kingdom and, and his fullness of its consummation, that his kingdom would come. And then there's this phrase that we cannot skip by, your will be done. Now, when we pray this prayer as part of the Lord's Prayer, we can't rush through this because this is a battle of the wills when we pray this. This is a submission to God's will. This is a seeking of God's will. Oftentimes, our plans and God's plans are different. The more that we pray and the more we seek Him, the more we understand what God's will is for us and for the world. And that is what we want to pray, that God's will be done, not ours. We can also pray that, God, you would make my will your will that you would instill that into my heart. And we pray this, we pray prayers of submission and realignment with what God is thinking for us and for the world. This is the halfway point of the prayer. I want to point something really interesting out. The first three prayers, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These give us right priorities. These realign us with what God is doing and wanting. The next three prayers, now that we're properly aligned, can be rightly focused on our genuine needs. Now that we've done that, we can do this. The first half was about God and his worship, which should be our primary concern in all of our lives. God and his worship. And the second half of this prayer is about us and our needs, which should always be our secondary concern. We pray, give us today our daily bread. Now we know that bread... It represents food which we need each day to live. And there's deep significance to this back in the, in the Jewish culture that Jesus would have delivered it. Because workers were often hired one day at a time. Bread couldn't be preserved the same way it is now. And, and the pay was often so low that it was nearly impossible to save. So what it often meant for people who would have been listening to Jesus is that a day's work and a day's wage equaled a day's food. So there was this constant reliance on the work that was done so that they could be provided for. Now this is really lost on us in 2017 in North America, where we live right now. I've had a loaf of bread in my cupboard for about a week. I'm just going to go out and buy another one when that one runs out. This context that it's given in is, is much more significant than that. And of course, we know that bread represents all of our needs, not just food, but the physical and spiritual needs. But again, this goes right over our heads because as a culture and society, we are so self-sufficient that oftentimes our basic needs are taken care of. But what if it's bigger than that? What if it is that and more? It's our, our physical needs. It's our spiritual needs. The tension here, I think, is that this forces us to wrestle with what a need is and what a want is. I've been wrestling with this in my own life recently. I think as a culture, we're way out of whack on what a need is and what a want is. Now, Jesus promises to provide for our needs, but he might also trigger a thought in your mind, is this really a need or is this a want? We need to be realigned, and that's what this prayer helps us to do. 
Bottom line here is this is a prayer asking for God to provide for our needs and trusting that this is a prayer that he will answer because he is a good father. Now the difficulty here is when we ask God to provide for our needs that he often provides in unexpected ways or in ways that we weren't imagining or in timelines that we weren't thinking. Similar to the prayer, your will be done. God's will will be done. It just may not look like what you anticipated, but God will accomplish his will and he will provide for our daily needs. Forgive us our debts is the next phrase as we have also forgiven our debtors. This is a critical part in the prayer. It's a prayer of confession. See, to ask for forgiveness is to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. You don't ask for forgiveness unless you understand that you need it. Inherent in this prayer, I think, is the, is the prayer of Psalm 139, which reads like this. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We should not skip by this prayer of forgiveness. We should take a moment and invite God to search our hearts so that we know what we need to confess to him. Sometimes we need to pray, God, convince me of what I need to ask for forgiveness for. Because we have this twisted way of justifying our ways before God that we don't even think we're doing anything wrong. But we need to pause from our busy lives and quiet our hearts and our minds and say, Jesus, is there a way that I am sinning against you? And would you please show it to me and lead me in the way everlasting? And then would you please forgive me of my sin? The word debt used here, I think, is an interesting word. Of course, we know it's, it's referring to sin. But think of the image it represents. Debt, sin, essentially, is, is like a mortgage so large that we could never repay it. Now, some of you are kind of thinking like that. It sounds a little bit about my situation right now. But think way, way, way bigger than that. And so large, it could never be repaid. See, the gospel screams that, as Christians, you and I who are children of God, our debt has been paid. Our sins have already been forgiven. Jesus took care of that on the cross. And before God the Father, God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Because his righteousness has been imputed to us who believe and trust and walk with Jesus. But there's this other thing that happens where even though our sins have been forgiven by Christ on the cross, we all still continue to struggle with sin. We are still in our flesh and bones. They're being weighed down by sin. We know that we are tempted. We're about to cover that in just a moment. And because we still struggle with sin, we need to keep short accounts with God. We need to keep going back to God, inviting him to search our hearts and asking him to forgive us. And even if there's nothing that really jumps out at you that you need to ask for forgiveness for, I think praying the Lord's Prayer regularly and saying, God, forgive me, reminds, it reminds me, at least, that I need Jesus so much every day. And then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think this is probably the most uncomfortable line in the entire Lord's Prayer. First of all, it's assuming that we have already forgiven everybody else. <laughs> Can you raise your hand and say that you've done that? But it, it, it kind of begs the question, what is Jesus saying here? Some people might think that you will only be forgiven for your sins if you forgive other people and that you can earn your salvation by doing that. And that is absolutely not true. We don't earn forgiveness by forgiving other people. Jesus actually expands on this in the following verses 
In 14, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Again, this does not mean that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, but we must forgive others. We are obligated to because God has forgiven us. And here the gospel screams forth again. The gospel says that our sin was so great and that we did not deserve to be saved. God did not save you and forgive your sin because you're such an awesome person and he just wanted to do you a favor. No, we, it's, it doesn't work like that. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still stuck in our sin, spitting in Christ's face, so to speak, that is the moment at which he saved us when we did not deserve it at all. So we're left with this challenge. Who are we to not forgive other people who wrong us when we wronged the God of the universe and yet he still forgave us? Now forgiveness can be a process. Sometimes counseling is necessary to complete the process of forgiveness because many of us have been wronged really bad and we need to work through that. But what this prayer is suggesting is that the vertical and the horizontal are not mutually exclusive. They are bound at the hip. Your relationships with each other, the people in this room, your family, your coworkers, everyone, is connected to your relationship with God. And if you're refusing to look at this, some stuff that you need to work out, I can tell you what God wants you to do when you're talking to him about this. The, the vertical and the horizontal are connected. And then the last phrase of the prayer says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a prayer of protection. It's acknowledging that, yeah, we still have a sin problem. We still do struggle with sin. And there is this thing out there that's trying to bring us down. It's our, it's our own hearts. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all still struggle with this. It's very important, though, to highlight that Jesus... God never tempts us to sin himself. It says that very clearly in James 1.13. But we will be tempted. And when we are tempted, we need strength to endure. This word tempted can also be translated into tested. And we know that God will allow us to go through periods of testing. We know that he will allow us to be tempted as well. Look at Jesus in the 40 days in the wilderness. God is not the one who tempts us. But when we are tempted, which is an inevitability, we need to pray for protection. And that God would protect us from temptation that we can't handle and protection that, from temptation that is just far too much for us. And deliver us from the evil one. Sometimes it's our own sinful flesh that tempts us, brings us down. Sometimes the kingdom of darkness, which this prayer acknowledges is very real, and very important. Sometimes they're coming after us as well. So we need to be aware that life is an ongoing battle. Life is more than just what meets the eye. There are spiritual forces at work in the world, and they don't like you very much if you are a child of God. What we read in Ephesians 6 instructs us for this portion. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. This is the Lord's Prayer. As I said earlier on, the Lord's Prayer has had a significant impact on my life. I grew up in the town of Port Perry, where I'm now the site pastor. We moved there when I was 11 years old. My dad took a church there. He's a pastor as well, still there. And for the first few years, I really loved living in Port Perry. We had a dirt bike. We got to have some fun that we may not have had in Scarborough, where we lived for a few years before. And I got involved in my church. I started playing music and drums, and it was great. And then about halfway through high school, I had a, a major crisis of faith. I realized that what I was putting off on the outside really wasn't there on the inside. And long story short is I stopped going to church altogether. My parents were heartbroken about it. Around grade 11, I just said, I don't want to live a double life anymore. I'm just going to go do my thing. And when that happened, um, it was partially because growing up in this small town, in this small church as a pastor's kid, it's, it, it felt a bit like a fish in a fishbowl. It felt like I was under the microscope. It seemed that any time I did anything wrong, big or small, it would get back to my parents because that's how small things worked. And I began to develop this bitterness towards Port Perry. And that bitterness festered into actual hate. I'm going to use the word hate intentionally. I, be, I began to hate Fort Perry. Now, there's a lot of us who have grown up in small towns and just wanted to get out of there as soon as high school is over. That was me, but it was deeper than that. Fast forward a bit in the story. The Lord revealed himself to me in first year of university, right over there, actually. And my life has never been the same. And then when Nicole and I got married, there was this opportunity for us to move into this apartment in Port Perry. And I just said, no, I don't care how nice it is, what the price is, we're just not going there. And then Nicole overruled me, and we ended up going there. And I found myself stuck in this town again that I was just trying to get out of my entire life. And then we decided to plant a church in Port Perry. And I'm like, oh, man, I just can't escape this. I knew that I had to deal with it. I knew that something had to be done. And in God's grace, about a year and a half ago, I felt like I, need, like, I, felt like I really needed to deal with this. And I was praying. I felt like the Lord wanted me to start praying for Port Perry. I had never really done that before. I didn't care enough about it to pray about it. So I found this little perch where I could park my car in Port Perry. If you know it, it's near the water tower just behind the high school. And from this perch, I could see the church where I grew up at. I could see Port Perry High School where our site is. And I could see kind of a wide spread of the town. And I sat there in my car that first day and said, Lord, I know you want me to pray for Port Perry, but I don't know what to pray. And I just kind of had an impression to start praying the Lord's Prayer. So I said, Our Father in heaven, on behalf of C4 North Durham and Port Perry and the surrounding area, hallowed be your name here. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Port Perry, in the surrounding area, and in C4 North Durham as it is in heaven. And I kept going, and I started praying through this prayer, and I would pause after each phrase, and I would say something in it. And what I found was, because I've grown up in this town, there's like this, there was this, like this seed of a burden there. When I got to the temptation part, I started praying for the, the people, the, the, the high schoolers who attend Port Perry High School about the temptations that they face that are so extreme, and I know how extreme they are because I lived there, or I went to school there. 
And God gave me this prayer to pray over Port Perry, and I ended up praying it just about every day for six months. I went back to the spot, parked my car, and I prayed these prayers. And I don't know what the impact of those prayers was on Port Perry or C4 North Durham. Maybe one day I'll find out in heaven. But I can tell you that God so used the Lord's Prayer in that season of my life to heal my heart, to get me to the place where I could actually be the pastor of C4 North Durham. John and Dave were kind of journeying with me through this all along. And, and when I went into their office and said to them, I think the Lord wants me to be the pastor of C4 North Durham, their jaws dropped and they couldn't believe it because they, they, th they still thought I hated Port Perry. So I said, let me tell you what the Lord's been doing in my life. The Lord's Prayer is powerful. It's simple and it's brief, yet at the same time it's all-encompassing and versatile. You can use it in so many different situations of your life. And you can memorize it so it's always just right there in your back pocket whenever you need it, whenever you don't know how to pray. I want to close by suggesting three different ways that you can use the Lord's Prayer in your personal prayer life. This series is called How to Pray, and I have every intention of teaching you how to pray the Lord's Prayer once you leave from here. The first way is very simple. You can pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim, anytime, about anything, and God will hear you. Your prayer will reach his ear. If you don't know what to pray, pray the Lord's Prayer. I got some rough news on Thursday. I had a bad afternoon. I found out I have to replace my car. I was sitting in my car, kind of bummed out. And because I was so immersed in this preparing, I just started praying the Lord's Prayer. And what happened was I remembered that there are things that are more important than a car. God knows what I need before I even ask him before I even take the car to the shop and find out that I do need a new car, and that he is a good father. And I can have access to him anytime I want. I can talk to him about anything. And when you're going through anything, good, bad, boring, in between, you can pray the Lord's Prayer. The second way you can use the Lord's Prayer is as a model. In Luke's version, Jesus says, well, he says two different things to introduce it. In Luke's version, he says, when you pray, say... And then he says the Lord's Prayer. It's as if he's suggesting that we can pray it verbatim. But in the Matthew version, he says, this then is how you should pray. And it's almost as if some commentators suggest that he is giving us a model for our prayers that can be prayed word for word or can be prayed more as a model. So as a model, I look at this prayer and I see several things that should characterize our prayer lives. Number one, I see an address. The person now we are speaking to, we, we say the name of God. He has many names. Pick one. Sovereign Lord, dear Jesus, Heavenly Father, God of creation. I see adoration and worship. Remember, right away, address adoration. Address worship. Worship God in your prayers. Tell him how much you love him, how worthy he is of your praise. Our prayers should involve submission to God, submitting to his will and his purposes, and seeking his will in his purpose. Our prayers definitely should include requests and petitions. I'm not railing against that in any way. But we need to align ourselves so that we're asking God for what his will is. God wants to hear you. Yes, God already knows what you need before you even pray, but that does not change the fact that he wants to engage with you. He wants you to tell him what you're going through and what you need from him. And what you want. 
Prayer should involve acknowledgement of sin and confession of sin. And they should involve protection and deliverance and an element of spiritual warfare. Don't blow spiritual warfare up so that it's the, it's the most important thing, that it's only thing that you pray about. But yeah, our prayers should acknowledge that there's more going on than meets the eye. And the third way, and this is the way that I prayed in Port Perry for those six months, is to use the Lord's Prayer as a starting point. So memorize it, and after each phrase, stop. And the thing that I love about this style of prayer is that you can pray it over any situation and get really specific. You can pray the Lord's Prayer over your marriage, and you should. You can pray the Lord's Prayer over your job. You can pray the Lord's Prayer over your finances. You can pray the Lord's Prayer over our church, and please do. You can pray the Lord's Prayer over your kids. You can pray it over C4 North Durham. You can pray it over our new site that's happening in Bowmanville. Our Father in heaven, in this church, hallowed be your name. This is what you can do. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in C4, in my marriage, in, in the prayer lives of this church in Port Perry, in Bowmanville, in Ajax, in Durham, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Allow me to close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are all sufficient that you are a good father. We thank you, Lord, that you know what we need before we even ask you. We thank you for the access that we have to you as children of God and the identity and other benefits that come by being one of your children, by being one of your disciples. Our prayer this summer, God, is that you would teach us how to pray. And we echo the disciples' phrase, Lord, teach us how to pray. Would you teach us Prayer can be difficult for many of us, and we need you to help us, Lord. We thank you for the Lord's Prayer, this great gift, this great tool that you have given us to put in our spiritual tool belts. Lord, may we not squander this. If we don't have it memorized, Lord, would we memorize it so that we can pull it out when we need it? God, would you lead us to use this prayer to pray over our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages, our church, our region. We thank you for how penetrating this prayer is, how accurate and versatile. Would you please stand with me as I close by reading the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll respond in songs of worship. You can pray it with me if you'd like. It'll be on the screens. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.